Hey everybody, welcome to the Sanctus Forum. I'm Michael Stewart Robb, I'm better known as Mike, and this is a special Parents Basement edition of the Sanctus Forum. Um, if you stick around, we will be looking into... Uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> there, there are sort of setbacks to working in your parents' basement, such as that people use the plumbing above you. <laughs> and so that there's little surprises like that. Um, welcome. Um, stick around and you will have the opportunity to have us come and film in your parents' basement. Um, so five lucky winners will get that. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just traveling in uh, the U.S. seeing some family. And so uh, this seemed like the most interesting place to film in the house um, where we're at. Uh, I am talking about uh, the Divine Conspiracy and uh, Dallas Willard today with John Ortberg, who's my guest. I'll introduce him in a second. Um, but just to say, the Sanctus Institute, which sponsors these videos, is a institute for theology and spiritual formation in Europe. Uh, so normally we aren't in uh, Ohio, where I am right now. We're in uh, Munich, Germany. And we'd like to meet anybody um, there in that continent who is interested in these sorts of topics. So do try to um, do reach out to us um, in various ways. You can obviously subscribe to this channel. If you go over to our website, which needs a little help, you can sign up for our almost monthly newsletter and uh, hear about us that way, or just find another way to get in touch with me, um, especially if you have some real um, interest and knowledge in these topics and uh, would love to connect with you. That's one of the things that we um, put a lot of energy into. One other thing, this is one of those longer videos, and if you don't know it already, there is a podcast associated with these videos, and you might want to switch over to that. Just look for Sanctus Forum in whatever you use to listen to podcasts, and you'll find our conversation, and you can put it on while you're ironing if you iron. I, I don't really iron. This has probably got plenty of wrinkles in it. <laughs> I've got John Ortberg with me today, and John is a speaker and a writer, and he um, lives in California. He's been a pastor of a number of churches, and uh, he has had the opportunity to get to know Dallas Willard personally, had um, read his books, and I think he even read um, a couple of them before they came out and gave Dallas some criticism uh, for them, or maybe positive encouragement. But he is uh, going to help us understand this section here about um, Made to Rule, uh, which is, in my edition, pages 21 to, let's see here, 28. And uh, just so you know, we're going to be talking about what it means um, in Dallas's mind for human beings to have a kingdom, and then uh, what it means for God to have a kingdom. And um, so I'm very excited to have John with us. Um, hey, John, how you doing today? Mike, it's really good to join you in your parents' basement. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're not in your, your parents' basement. Um, you've, uh, is this your study? Uh, this is my study, but I was reminded as you were talking about that, a little section that Dallas has in the Divine Conspiracy, 
where he talks about uh, Jesus becoming ordinary like us and that the secret of the ordinary is it was made to be the vessel of the extraordinary. And uh, that's the whole notion of the idea of a sacrament. So uh, uh, it just struck me that it's very appropriate for uh, something called Sanctus to be located in your parents' bedroom. <laughs> or or, or uh, basement, rather. In, in basement, yeah. 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 Well, um, you've, uh, you've, read, um, you've read Dallas's books. Do you, do you still pick them up and read them from time to time? Uh, I do, and I'll say a word about that uh, for anybody who's interested in Dallas Willard, uh, but also just for learning in general. I was talking with Dallas one time about reading, and uh, uh, he is the smartest guy I have ever known. I will sometimes joke I would never get into an argument with Dallas because I was afraid he would prove I don't exist. So I I, I didn't offer him much criticism. Um, But I like to read. Uh, I would often feel guilty uh, for the things that I felt like I should have read and have not been reading and, you know, would have stacks of books or articles that I felt behind with. And I was talking to him about that one time and he said, uh, when you read, aim at depth, not breadth. Hmm. Because if you get to depth, you will have breadth thrown in. But if you aim at breadth, you will get neither depth nor breadth. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And then he unpacked that a little bit that uh, if we think about, for example, spiritual formation, how does the human character get formed? If you take anybody, take Ignatius and go deep into him, uh, you will find certain um, topics and themes. The need for solitude is a constant and the need for self-examination is a constant because the human condition doesn't change. And if those get deeply in you, then when you're reading Wesley, or Calvin, you'll come across the same ideas and you'll recognize them. Hmm. So if you aim at depth, you get breath in it. But if you're just always skimming, uh, looking at the surface of things, uh, you get neither depth nor breadth. So actually, yes, I am uh, constantly reading and rereading Dallas. And uh, Mike, we were talking recently, you actually uh, helped to kind of curate a lot of the talks that Dallas did over the years and make them available to folks. And uh, I, I listened to one last night, often in the middle of the night, I can't sleep. So I'll put on Dallas. So yes, I am uh, reading and rereading and listening and re-listening to Dallas, uh, literally pretty much on a daily basis. Hmm. That's, um, that reminds me of something I wanted to ask you about. Um, and, and one of the things that Dallas was worried about after he left this earth was Mm -hmm. that we would have, um, Willardites. Do you know this conversation that he had with Todd, Todd Hunter? No. Todd had asked him what he was concerned about with, yeah, the, the, ongoing nature of his work he had he had gained following and people were interested in these topics and what what he was worried about and he thought for a long time and willardites was was what he was worried about (laughs) uh and i'm sure you've also read this little article that he wrote about living in the vision of god and about Mm -hmm. um how difficult it can be if yeah. you've had a, an Ignatius 
just in your midst to then keep the best of that going. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking about this, this idea of Willardites thinking about, you know, depth and how do you think we avoid being Willardites? What, what would, what could help us? Yeah. I, I think that the, uh, the temptation is to want to associate with a particular person and to get, uh, some measure of status or uh, satisfaction in feeling like you're on the inside or you know stuff based on mm. that, where it's not just producing growth and love. Mm. Um, so, you know, I would go back to at least the disciples of John the Baptist that were real concerned when Jesus was drawing bigger crowds and he wasn't. And uh, he's got that wonderful statement. Uh, no one can receive that which is not given to them by heaven. Uh, and, um, so not to look for any movement or any person, uh, as a vehicle through which I will receive greater status or glory or rightness. Uh, and I do think, um, Dallas would be probably the first to say, focus on what is true, follow the truth, wherever it leads you. Uh, if you find people that help you to do that, then, you know, by all means, um, leverage them and lean into them. Um, but, you know, I think he would say that there's nothing that he said that's original with him. He was just trying to, you know, do something that always needs to be done, which is to rediscover what the message in person of Jesus was. Um, and even if he would not say that, it still is something that we all ought to work at. So yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, Mike, you, you're an academician and I'm not, and a lot of your work is centered on uh, reflecting uh, on what Dallas has uh, written. How do you pursue that and not uh, turn into a Willardite? Yeah. Um, what was helpful for me is this sort of obvious idea that Dallas didn't read The Divine Conspiracy mm -hmm. at home. He read other stuff. Yeah. He was he was interested in other stuff. And yeah. so I started to ask the question, well, what was that? What is that? What is he what is he reading? What's what's keeping his life going? What's um, inspiring him? What makes sense to him? And and then finding those things. It weren't terribly wasn't a terribly easy project because of he wrote he didn't write his his theological books for a scholarly audience so they aren't littered with footnotes right and so you did kind of have to grab onto oh so he mentions like in this section here he mentions frank lavach so but he doesn't really say what what exactly he's got from him so mm -hmm. it's kind of you have to go and read read all of frank lavach and then you yeah. say oh okay so that 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 fits that yeah. matches and that helps me a lot to be situated in a larger tradition and in a larger context um, within Christ followers. Um, and yeah, to degree. The other thing I could say that really helped me is reading the philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. And I probably like many people, I, I opened an article a long time ago and thought, no, I don't know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And 
And then at one point, I just said, well, I'm just going to do it. And fortunately, I had a friend who studied philosophy, so he read, we read the first article together, and and that was really, really helpful. Hmm. Um, yeah. But it's it's not something, I think, for everybody, because it does take a lot of time um, to do that sort of thing. So Yeah. Yeah. I After Dallas died, uh, I got a book. Hang on one second. Yep. Uh, uh, Introduction to Phenomenology by Robert Sokolowski. Yeah. Uh, and it was something that felt like a, a, a bit more accessible um, uh, on-ramp into the field that Dallas uh, was particularly involved in as a professional philosopher. And one of the concepts that the author talks about in that book uh, is... Um, uh, the importance of clarity and um, uh, he talks about one of the great problems in the mind being uh, uh, ambiguity uh, which is not the same thing as error error is when I think something to be true when it's not and it's not the same thing as ignorance ignorance is uh, uh, when I simply don't know something uh, ambiguity is when I don't understand what I'm saying hmm. and uh, that we shouldn't be uh, distressed by this. It's an inevitable part of learning. You always have to say things where you don't know what it is that you're saying yet. And then you keep working on it to try to get the clarity. But for me, Dallas, more than anybody that I knew, um, battled for clarity. Yeah. And right. uh, uh one of the uh, interesting discoveries uh, about his mind was in, in the year that Dallas was dying of pancreatic cancer, uh, where he and Jane lived, they had bought another little house there and turned that into a library. And there was a garage also that was like his courtiery library. He had his house and then the second house and then his library at USC and then thousands of books in this garage. And so we had to go through and he was a bit of a pack rat, so it, it was an all-day project to box up uh, thousands and thousands of books. And it struck me going through them and seeing often his comments inside books that uh, he had literally read pretty much everything of significance about the human condition from Homer on hmm. and uh, struggled very hard to eliminate ambiguity and to get to as much clarity as possible. Yeah. And so one of the kind of games I would often play with him was just to ask him to define words. Yeah. And uh, I, I cannot think about uh, almost any significant word. Beauty is goodness made manifest to the senses. Mm -hmm. uh, spirit is unembodied personal power. Uh, uh, joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Uh, and I think for anybody who has read Dallas or might think about reading him, uh, lots of us will often find his books are quite dense. And it's not at all because they have a technical vocabulary attached to them. Often people, especially in theology, will do that. Dallas did not. Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly that uh, those words and ideas and concepts are a bit like an iceberg where there's the word that breaks the surface, but then there's this enormous body of thought underneath them. 
And it's that density of thought that gets you into sentences that it just takes a long time to try to unpack. Yeah, yeah. That that clarity, that search for clarity, that comes probably... I, I can't imagine that didn't come from Edmund Husserl, mm -hmm. uh, who was extremely meticulous about making distinctions and getting trying to drill down to clarity about things um, to the point that it made his books very difficult to read. Um, rewarding, I mean, but then, you know, physics books are difficult to read because mm -hmm. phys uh, physics folks are, are also meticulous and, you know, are trying to dig deeper and deeper. And that's what Husserl did. And he came out with some pretty important insights by being that way. And, uh, and that's, that's what, that's the kind of spirit of philosophy and thinking that Dallas, um, carried into, yeah, his own life. Yes. And that's where, uh, when I have tried to read, uh, Husserl, it's been very heavy sledding. And so books like this that are kind of secondary sources help me to yeah. understand it. And I, I think that you're right. I think, uh, the the significance of clarity and uh why it is that we ought to strive for it and what it looks like when we don't achieve it is part of paying very close attention to consciousness that yeah. was at the heart of what uh Husserl did and you know that Dallas did and for a variety of reasons uh I think in our world generally uh consciousness is something that lots of thinkers shy away from a bit because it doesn't seem terribly scientific because it is so deeply subjective. Um, but the irony is, of course, we can't know anything except through consciousness. And so uh, I, I think with Husserl and with Dallas Willard, uh, you get people who give pay very, very close attention to the nature of consciousness. And there's something very helpful about that to me. Yeah. You um, are, if you, you are in the acknowledgments here of this book here. I'm sure you, I'm sure you know that. Um, if I was in the acknowledgments, I would remember that. I don't, I don't find it right now, but he must, there it is. Yeah. He names people that had helped him and you got a, you got a, a mention. So you saw a draft copy of this, I assume. Uh, I actually... I first, uh, I had heard of Dallas Willard, but I first really became familiar with him when I read the book, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines. Yeah. And that just uh, was a, uh, literally a spiritual experience and an illuminating experience. And uh, I realized this was somebody who had thought deeply about questions that seemed to me to be most important. And so not long after that, I got a copy of... Uh, cassette tapes. Most of you watching this will have no idea what a cassette tape was, but way back in the day, that's how we would listen to stuff. And Dallas had given a series of uh, messages, lessons for a class at Hollywood Presbyterian Church on the kingdom of God. And much of the material that would go into the divine conspiracy, I heard for the first time on those tapes and would listen to them over and over and uh, had gotten to know Dallas a bit. So he would send things. And 
I think if I made any contributions at all, it would just simply be trying to help him see how a person of much lesser intelligence would be confused about stuff so that he could go back and give it a little more dwelling time. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, um, how this section here that we, um, set out for ourselves here, um, made to rule, he's talking mainly about what, what it means for a human being to have a kingdom. How did that, (laughs) what did you make of that? (laughs) Uh, I found that enormously helpful. Uh, I think that uh, there's certainly lots of people in the New Testament guild who talk a lot about the kingdom of God. That's something that has shifted. I grew up in uh, kind of traditional evangelical church environments in the 60s and 70s. And the gospel that got presented most often there was much more uh, centered around how do you get into heaven after you die? And what are the minimal entrance requirements? And so there were a number of folks, uh, John Bright would be one in the evangelical community, probably George Ladd would be the New Testament thinker who most helped the church rediscover again the gospel of the availability of the kingdom of God, that it's now possible to live in the kingdom. And then more recently, folks like Tom Wright and T. Wright will have written about the kingdom in ways that makes it uh, much more accessible, I think, to people in the church than it was 50 years ago. Yeah. What I've found really, really helpful with Dallas is there's that awareness on the level of theology and biblical scholarship. But because he read and thought so widely and deeply, also across philosophy and psychology and other disciplines, um, there is a um, richness to his understanding of kingdom that goes beyond uh, at least for me, what I would often find if you read somebody who's just in the New Testament guild. Um, so he's thought deeply about the nature of personhood mm-hmm. and uh, the reality of the will and how the will works and yeah. the role the will plays in a human life and what happens when a will is disrespected or thwarted and has deeply connected the notion of kingdom exercising dominion with that notion of will and for us being made in God's image, uh, what our wills can do, what they cannot do, uh, how that's connected to our sense of dignity and worth. And so uh, there's a uh, this layered depth to his notion of kingdoms and its connection to personhood yeah. and how it integrates with fields that we think of as being different psychology or philosophy or theology or spiritual formation. But of course, those are all different ways of just simply looking at reality and reality is one. And so the oneness and depth of it, I find uh, Dallas writes about in ways that it's just hard to find in other thinkers in our day. Yeah. Yeah. Let me read to you a section here. Um, from just the very first page here, um, our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will. Whatever we genuinely have the say over is in our kingdom, and our having the say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. Mm-hmm. In creating human beings, God made them to rule, to reign, to have dominion in a limited sphere, 
And then this final sentence, only so can they be persons. And I'll read the next sentence. Any being who has say over nothing at all is no person. Um, that doesn't strike me as something that you would just get out of the New Testament. <laughs> uh, uh, I would say, uh, to the contrary, that's where Dallas would say he got it. Um, yeah. however, I think most of us don't tend to see it there and have a yeah. hard time finding it there. And yeah. that, that's part of what just constantly gets covered up and rediscovered. So uh, I, I'll say a little bit about it, and then I would love to get your perspective on it. When Dallas was describing himself as a philosopher, sometimes he would, he would describe himself by saying he was a personalist. Hmm. And uh, I, that's above my pay grade, but I take it part of what that means is um, that personhood uh, personal existence is at the foundation of reality yeah uh because god is a personal god yeah and uh uh one of the definitions dallas would sometimes use of people is you are a mind with a will in a body yeah and uh that's a very nice really simple definition of what does it mean to be a person yeah uh and um so uh, to have a will uh, means that we're able to say yes or no, we're able to choose, we're able to create, and it is the will in particular, although that's deeply connected with our mind, thoughts, and feelings, uh, we would have to have a mind in order to be able to have a will. And then our bodies are important because uh, they're that little sphere of physical existence where our will is able to reign. Mm -hmm. and and all of those things are deeply integrated um but it's the fact that you have a will that makes you a moral agent and gives everybody such unique dignity and worth um and uh when we think about why does why is there reality why does the universe exist i'll sometimes think uh it's one of two options either there were particles at first and then somehow people came along or there was a person at first and then particles came because of that person. And I think it makes a lot more sense to believe that a person could create particles than it does to believe that particles could create a person. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that notion that um, personhood is at the core of meaning and existence and reality and broken personhood is our great problem and redeemed personhood is at the core of everything uh, it just seems to me like, yes, that's true, 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 true. And it helps me understand what stands between me and God and how I could be reconnected with God in really deep ways. So I, I just find that incredibly helpful at every level. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. What One of the things that stands out to me is not just the will part, but the, the body part um, I remember at one point Dallas was trying to work this out and he talked about um, angels not being persons. Mm -hmm. And angels aren't persons because they don't have a body. 
and oh, I, you know, I, I don't when, remember hearing him say that. Yeah. So the the idea with the body for human beings, um, and and perhaps in a more significant way, our minds is that this is a this is a place where our wills have direct influence. Yes. Right. So it's a sphere in which we can act um, independently. Yes. Um, doesn't mean that God didn't create us or anything like that, or he's not in, in charge, or, but we can act independently. Now, angels don't have bodies or a sphere like that. God does, but angels don't. Angels can only act by um, using, working with God. So they, they have to do it immediately. Um, and and I think that's really um, a significant statement he's making there about what, what persons are and what um, that, that we are um, and God is something where we have sort of, uh, we don't, our choosing actually has consequences in one area, yeah. right? And that's the beginning of what Dallas is going to call our kingdom. Mm -hmm. Now, you do use those, that sort of little sphere, your body, your mind, to have control over other things. So the electricity in your house or whatever it is, other people. Um, and there, through that means your kingdom is expanded or has sort of range of, you know, small, large, whatever. Um, but that, that core there of being able to decide or act and have it do what you want, that's, that's the basis of your, your personhood. Yeah, there's so much there. Uh, that's why uh, the development of a little child always strikes us as so miraculous. Uh, yeah. My wife and I have a three-year-old grandson, and if we had known how good it was to be grandparents, we would have just skipped having kids and gone right to grandparenting. Yeah. Um, but what you see is a little blob of tissue, and then you know, w w uh, most of us are quite aware that uh, unless there's something really unusual going on, we're not able to bend a spoon with thought power. Mm -hmm. like our, our thoughts can't do that. However. Um, when you watch a little baby begin to learn to walk and then begin to learn to talk, what you're seeing is molecules coming under the influence of personal will. Yeah. And that's why it strikes us as so miraculous. And Dallas would sometimes use yeah. the analogy that roughly the way that God relates to the universe, God says, let there be light and there is light. Uh, our relationship with our bodies is roughly analogous to God's relationship with the universe, where I just simply say to my hand, move, and my hand moves. Yeah. And so that's why the body, people talk about spirituality in the body, and often they'll just talk in terms of take care of your body, eat well, you know, sleep. Those are all good things, but that's not nearly the, the major significance of the body and why it's so important is it gives us the beginning of our little kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's why there's such a sense of joy at the mastery of the body. And then from there, just like you were saying, using things like technology, education, 
we are able to expand the range of our influence or our kingdom in extraordinary ways. And it's that sense of will that is utterly unique and personal uh, that gives human beings such great worth. And, yeah. uh, you know, Kant would talk about uh, dignity of a person uh, making their worth irreplaceable, that every object has either price or dignity. And so books have a price, objects have a price, uh, even animals you can buy for a price. Uh, however, human beings do not have a price because they have dignity. Dignity is a worth so great that a price cannot be attached to it. And that's where Dallas is understanding that will is central to uh, the dignity of persons and honoring people's kingdoms is part of respecting their dignity. Uh, uh, there's, there's just immense amount of wonderful thought and truth there. Yeah. 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 The, the personalism bit, you mentioned that, um, personalism is a kind of school of philosophy that, um, I don't know if school's the right term, but a number of people were very interested in this, uh, from, late 19th century and into the early 20th century not too many people are working on it now um and dallas was connected with that usc was actually a, a center for personalism uh, when he first went along with boston boston university mm. those were the two kind of american centers for personalism mm. and no doubt that was one of the reasons why he was interested in in being at that school, um, in fact, their their publication, their journal for philosophy, um, was called the Personalist, and it was changed. Boy, I can't remember the name name right now. It was changed to something else um, as the number of philosophers there at USC lost interest in in that particular school. Um, it's interesting to me that that it's not exactly something. The thing is, you know, Thomas Aquinas or Augustine or whoever, they're all personalists in a way. They're not working on it in a, in a philosophical sense, but they they do think that the universe, as you said, is basically made up of personal beings. That's mm -hmm. that's the kind of bottom uh, rung. And, and I think it became more important in in our time as some other um, conceptions of, of ultimate reality kind of rose to the fore. Actually, you know, pagans, pagans also were personalists in the sense that they thought yeah. that, um, so that you didn't really have to worry about arguing for personalism at certain right. points. No, I've sometimes uh, thought that uh, there were ways in which that ancient view of the world saw personhood all over the place. So would often think of uh, nature being peopled and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the moon and the sun, and they had purpose in some sense. And then part of what happened with science was uh, that we came to see that we could understand much of reality around us if we treated it as objects and not as persons yeah and came to understand you know gravity and electromagnetic forces and so 
eventually they became this kind of irresistible impulse to say, well, if we can understand stars better that way and trees better that way uh, and everything else better that way, let's treat people that way. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, you know, then you get B.F. Skinner beyond freedom and dignity. Mm. And uh, let's treat people as um, one more object who can be understood in terms of stimulus and response yeah. and uh, cause and effect. Um, and uh, that's something that would not have been attractive, I think, for the most part, you would know better than me in previous centuries. And that's why that notion of personhood probably kind of inevitably came to be threatened as science proceeded. But I think what somebody like Dallas would say is what's lost is uh, it actually takes a person to do science. Science does not do itself. Yeah. And so yeah. the notion that you would try to turn that uh, uh, perspective on the scientist, on the thinker, on the person uh, is actually a, a, a horrible category mistake and a terrible loss of understanding. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's it's, however, a, a kind of thinking which doesn't just affect scientists or philosophers, uh, philosophers of scientists or some sort of elite group. Um, I think everyday folks can get into this thinking of uh, believing that where I am now is simply a result of other forces acting mm -hmm. upon me. We have, you know, circumstances, environmental things, and you start to hear what people complain about. And it's, and it's sort of things, things out there that have created my identity yeah. for me or created my, my sense of power and worth. And, um, and we feel victims of, of outside, of outside forces. Totally. And when you think about, uh, what influences people, uh, almost always the two categories that are posed are nature and nurture, yep. um, genes and environment. And of course, what's missing in there is, um, yep, I have genetic predispositions and yep, I have environmental influences. But then there's a third category where I have actually made choices. Yeah. Uh, I have made decisions. Yeah. And that comes out of the will. So it's certainly influenced by genes and influenced by environment. But the whole notion of being a person of having a kingdom is I'm not just the product of uh, genes and environment. So there's nature and nurture and notions. I have notions to do stuff and I will actually implement that. But yeah. almost never in that conversation about what influences us, do you hear that third category? But that's the one that as moral agents, we will be accountable, accountable for mm -hmm, so, uh, mm -hmm. worth, dignity, accountability. All of that stuff reflects personhood. Uh, but we're just uh, being conditioned or taught uh, in all kinds of ways to not think in terms of that category. Yeah. And people do talk about it. It will be thought of as either a romantic way to think or. Um, detached from knowledge. Knowledge is just dealing with genes and environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a that's a real 
important step to help other people and to um, help ourselves, which Dallas's um, words in this section can really, really be helpful with of sitting down and thinking, what, what is my kingdom? What am I uh, in control of? Um, And that might start, you know, larger, like, well, my house, I move my furniture around and put that where I want it to want it to be um, to I decide what I'm going to do on the weekends or when I'm when I'm done with work um, I'm making choices about that and and this is this is a philosophical point it's not new to Dallas Willard but the idea of our mind being the first place of of our freedom of being able to choose you know what am I going to dwell on mm-hmm. and what am I not going to dwell on mm-hmm. um I think of the story of Frank Labach, who Dallas puts in the middle of this section. And um, Labach, I always say Labach because it's the German in me. <laughs> I pronounce that C-H. Yeah. I think everybody would say Labach with a hard K, but I, sorry. Um, per- he, perhaps perhaps you should say Frank Labach. Frank, Frank Labach, if I'm really going to do it right, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, go the whole way. Um, he was an American, um, but lived in the Philippines for a significant portion of his life. And you can look up the story better than I can tell it. But he um, he lived for a while on this island with uh, a tribe that was uh, it was dangerous enough that he couldn't live with his family at the time. So his wife and his son, I believe, were were at a in the main main city in uh, the Philippines. And, uh, and by nature, that was a, a time of loneliness, of isolation. He, um, I think he did want to be there, but there was a sense of being like, yeah, not having a lot that you were really in control of. Mm-hmm. And that's also particularly the time when he starts to experiment with turning his mind to God um, as, as often as possible. And, and also, and this is something he picked up from his Muslim neighbors of putting himself throughout the day, um, of submitting himself to God in his will as often as possible. And, um, Muslim means, um, submission or some, some version of, um, submitted. And, uh, and that was, that was in a sense his blessing and salvation in that time of being isolated and uh, separated and uh, being very limited. Now it didn't stay that way for him. Um, and he, he eventually went on to do other things. He didn't stay on the Island, but um, I think that's, uh, I think that's what's what's meaningful about the Frank Laubach story as well for for Dallas. Yeah, and I, I think it's not a uh, coincidence that Dallas included him in this section because there's themes in that that just resonate very deeply with Dallas's thought. And again, it's not so much that it's Dallas's thought; it's just the reality of spiritual life and the message that Jesus had. And yeah. one of them was that for uh, Laubach, uh, as I understand it. It was a lot his desperation. I think two of their children had died and yeah. he had been disappointed. 
he had actually voted against himself to be president of the school that he wanted to be president of. And that was the vote that defeated him, that defeated him. Yeah. And yeah. so it was really out of desperation on Signal Hill that he turned to God. And Dallas would often say, God's address is at the end of your rope.com. Yeah. And so there is the fact that we all have a kingdom. We were made to reign, to influence, to be creative in the service of the good. And all of our kingdoms are broken. Uh, our wills are very weak. They're very important, um, uh, but very limited in what they can do. Uh, yeah. And that's why when people so often self-help literature can be kind of superficial because the idea you can choose to be happy. Uh, no, actually, you can't. The, the will is real good at making uh, very large decisions like get married, take this job. It's terrible at overriding the patterns and habits and attitudes that are embodied inside of us. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Habits eat willpower for breakfast. And so all of our kingdoms are deeply broken. Uh, uh, our wills are not able to get us where we need to go. And that's for many of us, the place where paradoxically, we're most likely to turn to God and find God. And I know for me, these last couple of years have been the hardest time in my life by far. And uh, also by far the deepest interactions for God with God. And it's interesting with Laubach also, he writes later on because he returned to the States and just had extraordinary impact uh, you know, on the Marshall Plan. He advised President Truman with that, the world literacy movement, each one teach one. I think that he was real involved with all those things. But part of what he says is his that notion of game with minutes to see how often can I bring God back to be present in my mind, uh, he said, became much more difficult for him when he moved back to the States hmm. and life became more normal hmm. than it was in the loneliness and neediness of the Philippines. Hmm. And uh, I, I think that's a spiritual dynamic that's just true for us. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, you you kind of touched upon it um, uh, there. I, I want to talk a bit about this sense of maybe as a way of thinking philosophically and theologically about the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. um, talking about finding the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, because Dallas is going to say, and I don't think this is really, um, Frank Laubach's language, but that that's what he was doing, um, by seeking out God, wherever he was looking for his, yeah. his action, trying to co-work with him. He was interacting with the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, I think that could be really intimidating for people. Uh, it's funny, Rob. I, I was, or Mike, Mike. I, was, I was, yeah, yeah. I always want to. Everybody does it. Go don't, from don't Rob Michaels to Michael Rob. Um, <laughs> uh, and then Stuart. It's like, you just, you have not, you have too many first names. You have a yeah. glut of first names and a paucity of last names. Um, uh I was listening to a talk Dallas did not long ago. I, I mean, I was listening recently to a talk that he did when he was still alive. And he talks about that phrase, seek first the kingdom of God, which of course is such an important one for Jesus and how 
it struck me, we often, if you're a church person, for people that are listening to this, turn that into uh, kind of an onerous obligation. Uh, I remember talking with a woman who was a mom of young children and talking about that verse. And she said she felt like she was much more spiritual when she was in college than when she was a young mom, because back then she had time to have a quiet time every day. And with young kids, that was like a oxymoron quiet time. And it was like, uh, we turned that phrase into have regular devotional habits or something like that. And in this particular talk, Dallas was saying, it's, it's like, uh, if you lose your keys, what do you do? You, you look for them. Where do you look for them? You look for them everywhere. So Mike here, back in Munich, and this is the point in the video in which you can learn how to be one of five lucky winners to have us come and film in your parents' basement. Just kidding about that still, but this is the point in the video in which this memory card stops having any more memory available. So what that means is that there is no longer any video of me, nor any good audio. But if you like listening to really good internet phone calls, the content is actually rather good. You can head over to sanctus.institute and sign up for our almost monthly newsletter, or you can subscribe to YouTube videos if you like more videos in which memory cards fail, because that's the sort of thing that I like to do. But remember, you're not paying anything for this sort of video, so let's get back to John. And it's that way with the kingdom of God. The idea is that God is a person and God has a will and uh, uh, his will is at work. Uh, I'm looking out the window right now and just seeing trees with leaves. And every time a leaf buds, uh, God's will for it to grow uh, is in a sense visible. And so uh, it's impossible to look at nature without seeing the kingdom over and over and over and over. Now, of course, nature is broken, so we see the presence of other kingdoms as well. Mm. Um, uh, and then supremely in my life, in any given moment, uh, I can just pause and say that little prayer, your will be done. Uh, and then I can not only see, um, but actually cooperate with, align my little kingdom with God's kingdom. and. This, this is another really interesting uh, connection of psychology and theology and spiritual life. Um, the guy who's been the primary researcher of the will and willpower in our day in the States is a guy named Roy Baumeister, who's a social psychologist in Florida. And uh, uh, he's done tons of studies on the will and actually put a bunch of it into a book a few years ago just called Willpower. And part of what he discovers is that the will is very important, but easily depleted. And mm -hmm. so any task that requires willpower to resist temptation, problem solving, creativity, impression management, um, persistence, uh, quickly drains the will. There is only one thing the will can do that does not drain it, and that is to surrender. Mm -hmm. Now, Baumeister doesn't talk about that. Um, but... Uh, Dallas used to say sometimes the will, your will was made to surrender to God. 
And I would invite anybody listening to this, whether you actually are even a believer or not, all through the day, just run a little experiment to surrender your will to the good. Uh, and um, uh, that act of the surrender of the will, I can do all day long, and it never depletes the will. And interestingly, in uh, things like 12-step programs with AA, uh, that's the third step, made the decision to surrender our lives mm -hmm. and will to God as we understood him. And uh, Bill W. in the big book of AA will talk about how you can do that anytime during the day when you're agitated or confused, uh, that the will, which will mess you up if you try to control your life or other people or use willpower to stop drinking, those are all wrong abuses of the will. But the surrender of the will, you can do that all day long. Uh, and so in that sphere also, we see this notion of um, our will was made to surrender, to align itself with something greater. And when it does that, we're actually renewed in power. Hmm. Hmm. How, do you, how do you find yourself thinking about God's will? And what does it mean to look for the kingdom of God in life? Uh, I find that one of the things that's most helpful for me is to um, not only turn my mind to God as often as possible. Because actually, I'm I'm not very good at that. And I and I Chesterton once said anything worth doing is worth doing badly and turning your mind to God as often as possible is worth doing. So if you do it badly, then great. It's okay. Um, but at longer periods of time, um, I do it almost daily of, um, I guess you could call, just call it writing up prayer requests. That's probably the old the old way to mm -hmm. say it. Uh, another way to describe it is just these are the things that I'm worried about in yeah. my life, yeah. right? And I I just write single line things. You know, one you know one word or just not sentences or anything, and and that's usually as a part of a time of just dwelling with God on what I'm doing. And they usually have to do with something that's going on that week. But um, being able to name name those things that are that concern me um, in life. Uh, and, and often they are things that are on the surface. They're things that maybe I, I think about from time to time. And then I don't have time to think about it at that point because I'm doing something else. So I push it down. And yet they still are things that concern me. And so those are ways to just sort of, I guess, release them to God, surrender them to God, ask for his intervention. Because, yeah, the surrender parts, I guess the easy part, the harder part is saying, okay, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to make this happen on my own. So yeah. God, you've got to, <laughs> and that's the kingdom of God. That's sort of the, the, the step of saying, okay, now God, it's your turn. 
And that's what you're looking for. Yes. Yep. And, and I think part of what that means is often people, including folks that are listening to us right now, often may be seeking the kingdom, but they don't know it. Yeah. So if it's true that the kingdom is really because it's the range of God's effective will, it's just another way of talking about what God's doing. Yeah. Kingdom is what God's doing. And so if somebody sees beauty and is moved by it or feels grateful for it or uh, hears music that moves them or sees an act of generosity and that inspires them to be generous, they are actually looking at the kingdom of God, although they might not give it that name, but they are yeah. seeing yeah. Uh, the good taking place. So they actually are doing it, even though they might not give it that name. And then there could be other people, uh, you know, uh, proud, smug, loveless, religious people. And I'm often in that category where I might be reading the Bible and I think I'm seeking the kingdom of God, but I'm really just looking for a way to make myself successful or for myself to feel smug over other people. So I think it's possible that people may be seeking the kingdom. You're just looking for it like you look for keys, but they don't know it. And then others of us who may think we're seeking the kingdom and we're actually running the other way from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's where um, getting a sense of what the kingdom is when you actually find it is important. And uh, I will just throw this out there and then we'll see about discussing it. But one of the things that um, theologians have gotten excited about in the past 150 years has been what, what we call eschatology. Um, eschatology is just a study of, you know, it's the, the stuff of movies, apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic stuff, just what's going to happen at the end of human, uh, human existence on this earth. And there's a, there's a good bit of it in the Bible and, um, you don't have to be at a university theology course for very long to hear the kingdom of God sort of named in connection with eschatology, something, uh, something that's later. Mm. Yeah. Um, the thing about this book, and maybe this is why this just seems so refreshing to me is Dallas Will is just not interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, now that might be to his, his, you know, that might be a problem here that he's taken a term which really has to do with God bringing the world to an end and has made it mean something about what we're doing right now. Um, but I find it very helpful. And I think one of the things too, when you when you get people who are reading this book, especially if they've read other read other theologians on the kingdom of God is they they tend and this is what we do as if you're a pastor or you study you you always kind of mix things together because that's what you're trying to figure it out for yourself and you mix what Dallas is saying with what other people say and one of the things I'll read it to you here 
Um, here, he talks about the Old Testament book of the Psalms. I'm in this section here called God's Kingdom. The Old Testament book of the Psalms comes to a joyous and breathtaking celebration of God's kingdom in Psalms 145 to 50. And he says, you have to keep this picture in mind when we try to understand the kingdom. And he says, then we will not doubt that the kingdom has existed from the moment of creation and will never end. And this, this idea that the kingdom of God is not something that God is about to do, wants to do later, maybe maybe even did it with Jesus somehow, um, but preceded Jesus, preceded human understanding of it, preceded any form of God's revelation of it. It was something that's in the foundations of, of creation. Um, that really distinguishes Talos' view of the kingdom from a lot of other folks. Have you encountered that as well? Yeah, I, I think uh, particularly when Dallas started teaching, uh, being in the States, given where he grew up and the, uh, a lot of the churches and church people that he was addressing had grown up with a uh, approach to theology that was known more or less as dispensationalism and often it carried with it the idea that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount offered the kingdom to Israel and they rejected it and so then he went in another direction and I, I think there's very few folks now who would hold to that particular idea so uh, one of the ideas he was often having to battle in the early days of his teaching is probably requires less rebuttal now, partly because people like George Ladd and Dallas were so persuasive in what they said. Um, so I don't think there'd be so many people now that would say that the kingdom was offered to Israel and, and that they rejected it. However, uh, I, I do think that Dallas brought a vivid description of the reality of the kingdom and its availability to us in a way that was just very powerful. I know that's, that's the case for me. Yeah. Uh, and then it was helpful also in thinking about what will change. How, how are things different now from the way that they will be eventually? Uh, when he said the kingdom is present now, but other kingdoms that oppose it are present now as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why things are such a mess. And that's why I'm such a mess, because very often my kingdom is opposed to his kingdom right now. And that what we look forward to is one day when uh, his kingdom will reign unopposed. Yeah. So I, I think there is uh, a strong sense of uh, eschatology and hope in that way mm -hmm. that we do have something to look forward to that will be very different from things are right now. So it's not simply the case that this is as good as it gets, as Jack Nicholson would say. Um, uh, and part of what Dallas will also write about this kind of interesting to me is uh, he would say human nature is such that we require a projected future. Yeah. And uh, even when somebody is dying, they require a projected future. Yeah. And so uh, I think eschatology would also come in at that point. Does that make sense, Rob? Mike? It, 
Yeah, it does make sense. I mean, Dallas isn't a void of thinking about the future. Um, and obviously the kingdom of God's going to be a part of that as well. Um, it's, it's the, it's the theologian in me that wants to sort of say, okay, God has purposes for the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, is, is studying his purposes for the universe the same as studying eschatology, which Uh. typically has to do with what's going to happen in the last years, last moments of our existence on earth as we currently experience it. Yes. And, um, and that's where not just dispensationalism, but also um, folks who are in more what I call mainstream theology or just um, across the spectrum have been very interested in uh, eschatology as kind of this lost concept of mm-hmm. the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, Paul as a sort of eschatological thinker, Jesus as an eschatological thinker, and and of something having happened which um, moved humanity into some special period or time. So they're not just thinking about what's going to happen when, you know, a ways down, down the road. But this idea that that Jesus came and he did something, maybe it was resurrecting from the dead. Um, Maybe it was some sort of uh, victory over Satan and evil powers. Um, Maybe it was just God coronating Jesus on the cross or however it was, something like that, which which triggered this sort of switch in, yeah. in ages. And yeah. that's, that's very attractive. I mean, you'll find that in not just New Testament scholars, but you'll find that in, in systematic theologians as well. Dallas mentions briefly, I think in the Divine Conspiracy, how uh, generally in the ancient world, uh, hope was not regarded as much of a virtue. Yeah. And uh, other people have written that uh, about it quite a lot more. Uh, numbers of the Stoics uh, talked about hope as a moral failure <laughs> because uh, they were concerned about human suffering and uh, more similar to Christianity than lots of other groups in the ancient world because they believed that we shouldn't just indulge appetite and mastery of the spirit was... Uh, very important, and suffering could help add to that. But uh, they didn't go in for hope because hope meant you were relying on something outside yourself. And for the Stoics, that sense of self-sufficiency, the main dividing line is what's under my control and what's not under my control, and I will let go of what's not under my control and focus on my kingdom. Right. Uh, And so uh, when Jesus comes along, you know, you get like Paul's hardship lists, uh, we rejoice in sufferings because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and the Stoics would be right on board with them. But then, and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint. Mm-hmm. 
and that's where the Stoics get off the bus. Um, but that notion that uh, existence, reality itself has a destination, we're moving towards something. And that's where, again, you would know more than me, Mike, but my understanding is that progress in our day is kind of a secularized version of hope. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. In, in the ancient world, there would have been much more the idea that we're on the wheel of fortune, things get better, things get worse, but nothing is ever really going to change. And uh, uh, that notion that things will progress, should progress, should be moving from worse to better mm -hmm. is, is now a somewhat secularized version of that notion that there is an eschatology. We are moving towards a hope. What was created is going to be redeemed somehow. Yeah. Is that yeah. No, it does. It makes me think of two things. One is the between the 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 old sort of wheel of fortune uh view, you have this Christian view that comes in and you you see it the best in the Middle Ages. Um, though it wasn't sort of something that reformers would have been ignorant of or later later thinkers of of ascension being the transformation mm. to what's what's better so not just jesus's ascension but our ascension into the goodness of god and it was a it was not something that they necessarily looked forward to at the end of history it was sort of a if you can think of your typical medieval monk trying to um with god seek perfection and therefore be granted um full access to the vision of God, right? And that's the sense of, of ascending. But you notice how static it is, at least historically static. It's not something that really depends on, you know, future generations or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that modern thinking then changes. It sort of takes that sort of vertical movement and sort of puts it horizontally into, into history. And so there's this sense of, that the good that we are seeking is is only going to be sort of forward, whether in our personal life, but more likely in some some future of humanity, and uh, and that that takes Christian forms as well, both both in kind of the dispensationalism that you that you mentioned of where we're looking forward to that that age that comes way down the line um, to more secularized versions of the betterment of society. Um, and that that's where the second thing that made that made me think of comes up. Um, a thinker, um, Leslie Newbigin, uh, made the observation that uh, the only places in Asia where communism really took off um, were places which had been prepared by Christian missionaries coming in and talking about hope wow. and talking about, well, maybe this isn't, maybe this isn't as good as it gets. Um, hmm. and working towards the betterment of society. And that's, those are the places where, um, Marxism and communism were able to come in and say, ah, we have, we have a way to do it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, now I don't know. I mean, he's he's still a lay lay observer. I don't know how well that would hold if you did a, a history of of Asia and communism. But it is he noticed it at least in in small mm -hmm. small scales that that's where 
those those ideas uh, took root. Yeah. yeah. When you read the description of Acts chapter two, uh, there's lots of themes, uh, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to their need, uh, where you can see a lot of that groundwork uh, for a communitarian um, uh, experience of generosity and beauty uh, is pretty resonant. Yeah. Oh, great. John, I think I think we've probably exhausted our time here. Um, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add on top of what we've? No, said? I mean, there's you know, it could go on forever, Mike. But uh, you have a wonderful mind, and I'm really grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing, and eager to keep listening and reading and learning. Um, so thanks for what you're doing, and. Thanks yeah. for letting me have this conversation with you. It's very rich. Yeah, thank you for for being here and uh, doing this with me. And um, yeah, maybe we'll we'll do another one here down the road. I would love it. That would be an honor. Good. All right. Okay. Have a good day. Take care. Well, thanks for watching. Wow, we just disappeared. We just disappeared. I didn't expect to go. Well, it's done.